Good afternoon. It's good to see all of you. Uh, welcome to Zoe Community Church. If you're new or visiting, my name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. We want to welcome you, and hopefully you can stick around for a little bit so we can get to know you, at least know your name or something. Uh, I've shared this before, actually. I went to a church once years ago, uh, and they uh, were kind of like around our size, maybe, and one of the elders came up, and he said, uh, if anyone is new for the first time, we want you to stand up so you can introduce yourself in front of everybody and uh, embarrass yourself, right, and we could shame you. I don't know what they were thinking exactly, um, but I was there, and it was my friend's church, and I was visiting, and I'd actually been there twice, so that was my second time there, and he said, first time visitors, and he saw me. He knew everyone, right? So he knew that I was kind of new. So he's looking at me. He's like, first time. Anyone, first time. And I'm like, and, and it wasn't because I was shy. It was an integrity thing, right? I'd been there twice. I can't stand up and say it was my first time. I can't lie. I'm going to be a pastor in the future. So I'm like, no, no, no. And he's like, last chance, right? Before God, stand up if you are new. And I didn't do it. And I never went back. So anyway, I moved to, t- that's why we started this church. I had to get out of California. I had to leave. I was too shamed. But anyway, we're not going to make you do that today, but I do see some new people. So if you could stick around, we want to meet you. If you don't want to, that's cool too. I totally, I think me more than most, I understand if you don't want to be put on the spot like that. But anyway, welcome to Zoe Community Church. We're a simple church, okay? We're not the flashiest church, but what we want to focus on is the Word of God. So if you could grab your Bibles, let's get into it. That's why you're here. Not for me to make you stand up, but so we could get into the Bible. Let's get into the word. We're in 2 Samuel, the book of 2 Samuel, and we're in the second chapter. Now, we preached through 1 Samuel uh, last year, so this is kind of the second part of a greater story, but we're in the beginning of 2 Samuel. We're calling this series through the book King of Kings. We're going to start in chapter Uh, 2 verse 12, we'll read to the end of the chapter. Let me read and then we'll pray and then we'll get into it. 2 Samuel 2 verse 12. Abner the son of Ner and the servants of Ishbosheth the son of Saul went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab the son of Zeruiah and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number, 12 for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called Helkath Hazarim, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now Asahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle, and Asahel pursued Abner. And as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died where he was. 
And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. Verse 24. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Amma, which lies before Gia on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab, shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, as God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight anymore. And Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, and marching the whole morning, they came to Mahanaim. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down a Benjamin, 360 of Abner's men. And they took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Will you bow your heads? Let's pray. Father, sometimes we forget the stakes of what we're doing. Even the fact that we could pray to you, the God of the universe, and call you Father. Even the reality that we could be here right now and sing to you without fear and listen to your holy word, that's grace and mercy. God, because we know that this is your world, that you are a God who dwells from eternity past to eternity future, that you live in unapproachable light, that you are holy three times, God, that we are not worthy of being in your presence, and yet, here we are. So God, I pray that during this time that we would be focused, that we would remember that you are worthy of our attention, of our efforts to understand, of our obedience, of our faith. And God, I pray that this time would not be about us, ultimately, but about you. Everything that we need is not in us, it's in you. So God, we look to you, we pray that you would use your word in our lives, we ask for your grace, and we pray that most of all, your son would be honored and glorified, and we pray these things in his name, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Have you ever found yourself doing something that you never thought you would do? It could be something more on the sillier side, maybe when you were younger and cooler, you said, I would never, ever get a minivan, and yet, here you are. And I saw you roll up in your minivan. It looked good. Maybe it was something a little bit more serious. Maybe the other day you were talking to your kids. Maybe they made you a little mad. And you started saying something. And as those words were coming out of your mouth, you could hear your father or your mother. The things that you used to hate to hear were coming right out of your heart. Or maybe it's something even more serious. And I read a story once called The Man in the Well. It's told from a perspective, from the perspective of a nine-year-old kid, a boy. He's out playing on this abandoned farmland near his house. It doesn't say where exactly or what they're doing, but he's with his friends. They're playing out there 
and they hear this voice coming from an abandoned well. There's a guy who's stuck in the well. So they run up and they say something. And when he hears their voices, he shouts, get me out. I've been here for days. They could hear the relief in his voice, get help. And at first, in obedience to what he says, they start heading toward Arthur's house. His house was the closest, but then they slowly turn around and come back because they're curious about this man in the well. They start asking him questions. Arthur, the aforementioned Arthur, asks him, what's your name? And the man says, do you have a ladder? And there are other things on his mind. They lie. They said, no, we couldn't find one. They ask him more questions. Is it dark in there? What's it like in the well? Can you see the sky? And he doesn't answer these childlike questions. He simply repeats his request for help. Go tell your parents, please, there's someone in the well. After a long pause, Wendy finally asks, do you have any water? And the man answers, no, it's very dry. And you can hear him clearing his throat. They fall silent. After a while, they hear him coughing a little bit. He calls out again, but this time, for some reason, they don't feel like answering, none of them. And eventually, they get up, and they start walking away. And they can hear him calling out louder and louder, more frantically, but that only makes them start running even faster to get home. Now, the next day, they come back. They bring some food. They throw it down into the dark abyss. The well is so deep, they can't even see to the bottom. They don't know what this guy looks like. The man shouts, what did your parents say? Right, did you tell them? Did, did you get help? Are they coming? And finally, Aaron, the oldest, goes, my father said he's coming with the police. And in that moment, all the kids look at him with admiration because he's so quick-witted. He's so good at speaking on his feet. He tells this lie as if, it were true. They decide to ask him again, what's your name? And he doesn't answer. Now, as you probably noticed by now, this drags on for an uncomfortably long amount of time. But let me ask you, what do you think happens at the end of this story? What do you think happens to the man in the well? Do you think the kids actually go and get help at this point? After leaving him there for hours, a day even, even though we'll come back to the story at the end. I'll tell you right now, okay, so you're not worried. They don't. They don't. Now, it is a work of fiction, okay? It's not a real person. You don't have to be scared about that fate, the fate of that man or anything like that. He doesn't exist. Rather, what the story wants us to be concerned about isn't that guy in the well. Rather, what it wants us to be concerned about is the kids, it's a story about how disturbingly believable it is that kids might end up messing around with a stranger's survival, that life or death might be treated almost as another game, that a person might be in clear need and the most innocent of us, little children, might fail to do the right thing. Because true or false, whenever we have the opportunity to do the right thing, we always do it. True or false. See, what the story wants us to be concerned with at the end of the day is us. Mark Twain once said, quote, Everyone is a moon and has a dark side which he never shows to anybody. End quote. The truth is, there's a dark side to human nature, a side that we might try to hide from each other. And sometimes we even try to hide from ourselves. 
But the more in denial we are about this truth, about this fact, the more surprised we get when we are confronted, right in front of our face, when we're confronted with the darkness that resides in every single human heart, including our own. I think sometimes we're the most surprised when the darkness comes from us. Have you ever found yourself doing something that you thought you would never, ever do? Because the thing is, no one I ever met deliberately set out to ruin their lives with alcohol or pornography or gambling. No one I've ever encountered planned to push their kids away or to ruin their marriage with an affair. It was never the stated goal. No one sets out, they don't write it down on a piece of paper, this is my plan, this is what I intend to do, and yet these things happen so often. Why? Because everyone is a moon. And it's not that some people have a dark side and some don't, but the scriptures are very clear about this. No one is righteous. No, not one. And the scriptures show that there is something fundamentally frightening lurking just beneath the surface of even the quote-unquote best men and women that we see on the pages of scripture. Even people like David. And this brings us to 2 Samuel. Because you might be wondering, what does this have to do with the passage that I just read? It doesn't seem to be immediately connected. And the truth is, this is the kind of passage, I was telling the guys beforehand when we were praying for this service, this is the kind of passage where you read it, you understand the plot, you get kind of all the beats of the story. There's nothing confusing about it per se, and yet the truth is everything about it is confusing. What does this have to do with anything? Why is this in the Bible? What is the spiritual lesson I'm supposed to get from this? Some kind of poolside gladiator battle? A guy literally chasing down another guy and then getting stabbed in the stomach with the back of the spear? And then a shaky ceasefire? What's the lesson? And then David doesn't even show up in this story except by name. I mean, I thought that 2 Samuel was the story of David. Sure, it's kind of interesting what happens, but what does this Hebrew skirmish from 3,000 years ago have to do with the deeper parts of my life? Well, the truth is, if you're a human being, and I'm guessing just doing a quick glance that most of you are, It has to do with everything. Because remember, the books of Samuel are unique. Some would even call them the craziest books of the Bible. They're unique in that they take us deeper into real people's lives, take us further into real human struggles, and take us closer to the darkness that dwells within the human heart than virtually anywhere else in Scripture. That's their intention. They sit us down and they make us watch these people's lives their rise and fall, their lives and their deaths, uh, how they ruin themselves and how they ruin others. It's texts like these that reveal the painful accuracy of the statement that everyone is a moon, everyone has a dark side, no one is righteous, not even one. Abner, Joab, they teach us not to be naive. And I'll show you what I mean. Let's get into it. We'll look at this text into three part, uh, in three parts, in three sections. We'll break down the passage into under three headings. So first, the entertainment. Second, the escalation. Third, the end, appropriately. So first, the entertainment. The entertainment, which reminds us of what is deep down inside of every single son of Adam and daughter of Eve. Look at verse 12. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. Okay, so real quick, let me just give you some background here so you understand what's going on. Abner, 
okay, is related to Saul. Ner is Kish's brother. So Saul is the son of Kish. Do the math. That means that Saul and Abner are first cousins. And Abner has been the commander of Saul's army basically since the beginning of Saul's kingdom. Way back in the day, when a young kid named David volunteered to fight the giant Goliath, Abner was right there as the commander of the army. And after Saul's death and the death of his three older sons, Abner decides to take matters into his own hands to stay loyal to the house of his family, and he crowns the youngest son of Saul, Ishbosheth, as king. And thus far, they've begun to establish this kingdom of Ishbosheth in Mahanaim. But for some reason, now what we see in verse 12 is that Abner is on the move from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And today, we don't know exactly where Mahanaim is, geographically, archaeologically. We don't know for sure, but we know generally where it is. So what we see here is that Abner is on the move, not away from where David is, but toward where he is, toward his fledgling kingdom in Hebron. Abner is moving. How does David respond? Verse 13. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. So let's get a little background here. Joab is the Abner of David's army. He's the commander of David's military. And Joab decides to meet Abner halfway or on the way at the pool of Gibeon. Most likely a spring-fed reservoir used as a water supply. So if you can picture the scene a little bit, it's very jarring. On the one hand, it's very peaceful, right? You have this clear, tranquil water that people drink from. But on both sides of this pool are two armies that are on completely opposite sides of a conflict. Two kingdoms facing off, the house of David versus the house of Saul. One instituted by the hand of God, clearly and obviously. The other kept on life support by the hand of Abner. Now look at what happens next, verse 14. And Abner said to Joab, let the young man arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Now, this is the crux of this first point, this competition. Now, the word translated compete here in the text is normally used for sport, for something friendly, play even. In Hebrew, the word is related to the word for laughter. Okay, so it's generally a lighthearted thing, a lighthearted idea. It's why I called this point the entertainment. Entertainment is what Abner is literally suggesting. But then what happens? Verse 15. Okay, so they pass, they, then they arose and passed over by number 12 for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. Okay, so they start numbering out 12 and 12. Now, you got to be careful when it comes to numbers in the Bible. Okay, we don't want to go crazy with symbolism. That's how people get way off from what the author originally intended scripture to mean. However, that being said, Let's talk about these numbers. There is something to the number 12, because how many tribes of Israel are there? 11. No, there's 12. And what is this whole conflict about? Who should be the true king of the 12 tribes of Israel? And push it a little bit further. This is there in the Hebrew. It's not as clear in the English. But who is the father of the nation of Israel? Okay, Jacob was literally Israel, but it all starts with Abraham. Father Abraham. And what was his promised son's name? Isaac, which means laugh. And the word for competition is related to that word. So literally, okay, kind of under the surface, 
What Abner is suggesting isn't as innocent as we might think. There's an underlying message. Let's see who the real sons of Abraham are. Let's see who the real Isaacs are. Let's see who the real Israelites are. This is all about legitimacy. And what does this tell us even before this quote-unquote friendly competition begins? That Abner's intention was never about reconciliation. He was never about peace. And look at what happens, verse 16. And each caught his opponent by the head, thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called Helkath Hazarim, which is at Gibeon. So just to be clear, in case we just read it too fast, all 24 men, they die. Okay, so one-on-one, they kill each other. We have a drawing preserved from ancient Mesopotamia of something just like this, if you look it up, where a guy is grabbing another guy, they're grabbing each other by like the head, by the hair, and they're stabbing each other in the side. It's very efficient, but it's also very gruesome, and this is what happens. And just to think about it, judging by how quickly the swords came out, it's obvious that this competition was never going to be friendly. Why did they even have swords in the first place? So anyway, this tranquil setting is, is then renamed or called Helkath Hazarim, which means something like Field of Swords. Everything gets crazy real quick. And then verse 17 confirms it. And the battle was very fierce that day. It was never about entertainment. It was always about war. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. It spirals into an all-out battle. And notice how the text words uh, everything. Abner is beaten before who? Not Joab, but before the servants of David. One of my favorite fables, I guess you could say, not that I have like a lot of fables that I love, but in Aesop's fables, my absolute favorite one is the scorpion and the fox. I don't know if you know this, I tell anyone who wants to listen or even doesn't want to listen this fable because I think it's important, but basically it goes, a scorpion and a fox are at a riverbank. Okay, they need to both cross the river, and the scorpion asks the fox, hey, can I ride on your back to get across the river because I can't swim, I'm a scorpion, right? And the fox, it's a fable, okay? And the fox says, no, because if you ride on my back, I'm afraid you're going to sting me. And if you sting me, one, it's going to hurt, and two, I'm going to drown, right? It's going to poison me and paralyze my muscles. I won't be able to swim in the current. And the scorpion says... Uh, And this is my translation of the ancient Greek. The scorpion says, dude, why would I sting you? If I sting you, then we're both going to die, right? It doesn't make any logical sense. Think about it. And the fox can't argue with this logic. So he allows the scorpion on his back and they start swimming across. They start crossing. And while they're still a ways off on the other side, guess what happens? The scorpion stings the fox. And the fox starts to drown as the poison starts to paralyze his swimming muscles. And the fox says to the scorpion before he dies, he says, why did you do that? Now we're both dead. It doesn't make sense. And the scorpion says, it makes perfect sense. I'm a scorpion. What did you expect? It's in my nature to sting. Now, why did I tell you that? I just love talking about it. No, why did I tell you about that? Think about this. Think about the text so far. Why all this bloodshed? Why does Joab have to send 12 of his young men to fight against Abner's 12 representatives? Why does David have to send Joab in the first place with his army? Why is there even a conflict? Why is Israel God's people in civil war? The answer is simple. Because Abner 
refused to acknowledge David as God's king. And you might say, well, he didn't know what God wanted. He's just doing his best to be loyal. It's logical. You can't argue with it. Turn ahead to chapter 3 in this book. It might be on the same page. Look at 2 Samuel 3, verse 9. I want to show you this, even though we're getting ahead of ourselves a little, but you got to see this. Abner kind of gets into an argument with Ishbosheth, and we'll get to there in a couple weeks. But listen to what he says in the argument, verse 9, okay, 3-9. God do so to Abner, and more also, if I, this is Abner talking, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. That's from north to south. But say that again. What does Abner reveal here? God do so to me and more if I don't do exactly what the Lord said he was going to do. The truth is Abner has known from the beginning exactly what he's doing. He knows that God himself wants David to be king, not Ishbosheth. And yet... Even though he knows this, he sets up a rival kingdom anyway. He draws a line in the sand. He suggests a friendly competition. Of course he's going to lose. God is on David's side, and yet he does it anyway. Why? Why? It doesn't make logical sense, and yet it makes perfect theological sense. Scorpions, what do they do? They sting. Humans. What do we do? Psalm chapter 2 was our scripture reading. It starts with a question. Hopefully you were paying attention, but I'll read it for you again. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? In vain. It's not going to work out. But why do they do this? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Why? Because just as scorpions sting, it's in their nature, humans sin. Adam and Eve were given everything by God. But they were told if they ate from one tree, they would die. Just don't eat from that tree and everything will be fine and perfect and dandy. What do they do? They eat of the tree. They refused to listen. They disobeyed and their disobedience was rebellion. For God said one thing and they did another. We are their sons and daughters. And the craziest thing is God told them what would happen. If you eat of it, you will die. If you sting me, we're both going to die. They ate of the tree. So here's what happens a lot of times. We read a story like 2 Samuel 2. We look at Abner, and when we really think about it, we shake our heads, right? We look at Abner and ask, why are you doing this, man? Like, what is wrong with you? Obviously, you're going to lose. David's kingdom will be established. I already read Revelation. I know how it ends. Are you that foolish? You even know that God swore. He swore. He promised that David would be king. You know the word of God. You are doomed to fail. Why fight what God has clearly said? You know this isn't going to end well for you. And yet, the truth is, when we do that, aren't we calling the kettle black a little bit? I mean, isn't this what we do? And I'll speak for myself. I think about myself. I know the Bible says, for example, do not grumble or complain. It's right there. It's clear as crystal. And I know why it says it. Because... If I grumble and complain, it shows a heart of discontentment and ingratitude, and it fails to acknowledge the bountiful mercy and grace that God has given me in my life. 
right? I, I deserve hell for my sins. Right? I know who I am. And yet God has given me a wonderful family, a great church family. Shout out to you guys. Clothes on my back, food in my fridge, and more than all of that, eternal life and a relationship with God. And yet, what do I do? I grumble and complain all the time. People always ask me how things are going, and I say, can't complain, but I still do. I always find a way, somehow. Why? Because I'm a human being. I'm a sinner. I'm not excusing it. I'm explaining it. Hey, don't get me wrong. I'm not excusing my behavior, saying I have no part in it. But what I'm doing is I'm explaining who I am. People, by nature, are sinners, and sinners sin. So we can't stand in judgment over Abner for being foolish and disobedient, for being a sinner. If we do so, maybe it says more about us. Maybe it just reveals that we're not being honest with ourselves about who we are and how fallen we can be. The truth is, I hear this in church all the time. I've said it myself. I would never do that. Or, I can't believe that they did this. Whenever someone falls into sin, I can't believe that this person would cheat on his wife. What's wrong with him? What about his kids? What about how great his wife is? Now, yeah, he ruined his whole life. People do it all the time. We think we're better than that person. I can't believe that this person would, I, I can't believe it. If you say you can't believe it, then that means that you can't believe what the scripture clearly says, that all of us, all of us could sin in that way. I would never hit my child. I would never struggle with addiction. I would never split a church. Are you a human being or not? That's the question. Because Titus 3.3 says that by nature we are, guess what? Foolish and disobedient. Deceived. Slaves to all kinds of various passions and pleasures. Passing our days in malice and envy. Hated by others and hating one another. And this leads to the second point. The second point. First, the entertainment, which wasn't so lighthearted after all. The second point, the escalation. The escalation, which is about, when it comes to people, how things often go from bad to worse and to worse. Look at verse 17 again. And the battle was very fierce that day. The competition turned into a battle, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Keep reading. And the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now Asahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. And Asahel pursued Abner. And as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Okay, so what happened was Abner and his men, they lose. Okay, they start fighting, they lose, they start running away. They're straight up fleeing. And Asahel, who is very fast, Joab's brother, just takes off and he says, Abner's mine. Right, take out the head and everything else will fall apart. Verse 20, then Abner looked behind him and said, is it you, Asahel? And he answered, it is I. Abner said to him, turn aside to your right hand or to your left, seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asahel, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother, Joab? Okay, so Abner basically saying, don't test me. Okay, I don't want to hurt you, but I will unless you turn around Verse 23, but he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear came out his back and he fell there and died where he was and all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. Abner doesn't turn. 
He doesn't turn around to fight him directly. He doesn't turn around and strike him with a spear face to face. The text wants us to know this, that he uses the butt end. He doesn't really want to kill Asahel in this moment, but he's backed himself into a corner. So what he does is he uses the back of his spear and he pushes into Asahel's stomach. And from what we know of archaeology and stuff, the spears on the back, they weren't totally flat. They were a little pointed so you could stick them in the ground. And he hits them with such force that it goes right through his torso. And Asahel dies right there and Abner escapes. Now, what is going on here? What are we supposed to make of this? Well, one, don't miss the details of this text. Abner, even while running for his life, he recognizes Asahel. Did you see that? And he knows their family. And from what he said, he obviously doesn't want to get on Joab's bad side because of who Joab is. Now, who is Joab? Well, Joab, you should get used to this name because Joab's going to play a major role in this story until beyond David's life. Okay, he's a major player for better or for worse. Joab is the commander of David's army. But in verse 18, if you look back, it says that he's one of three brothers, the sons of Zeruiah. And this is important, okay? Who is Zeruiah? Anyone know? Anyone doing their devotions in First Chronicles lately? Okay, turn with me to First Chronicles real quick. It's just a couple books ahead. Keep your place here. First Chronicles 2. I just want to show you this because it is important. First Chronicles 2. Chronicles is a hard book for a lot of people to read because it starts with just genealogies. Nine chapters worth of genealogies. And in chapter 2, we have David's genealogy. Look at verse 13. <clears throat> verse 13, it starts with Jesse fathered. I never miss a chance to read a Bible verse that has Jesse in it. First Chronicles 2, verse 13. Jesse fathered Eliab, his firstborn, Abinadab the second, Shemaiah the third, Nethanel the fourth, Radai the fifth, Ozem the sixth, David the seventh, and their sisters were Zeruiah and Abigail. And the sons of Zeruiah, Abishai, Joab, and Asahel, three. Now you can go back, but the reason why I showed you this is because you've got to understand that Joab is related to David. Joab is David's nephew. Okay, Joab and David are close. There is a bond that goes beyond just, you're my commander, we were part of the same kingdom. They are of one household. Now, understand that the text makes it a point to tell us who Joab's mother is for a reason. Actually, a couple of reasons. One is just so we know how, how Joab's related to David. But two, also to let us know that Joab, Abishai, and Asahel, they're not half-brothers. A lot of times when they talk about the father, right, that they're, they're, you're sons of Nair or whatever it might be, you know, these guys had multiple wives. We talked about polygamy before. And sometimes between half-brothers, there was some d- dissension. And we're going to see that actually with David's sons who aren't fully related to each other. There are some real problems that come out of these polygamous relationships. But in this case, these brothers are blood brothers. They are full brothers, And this explains to us the bond between Joab and Asahel. It helps us understand why Joab responds the way he does. The second reason I touched on it, the text really wants us to understand that Joab is all in on David's side. Usually in the Bible, they will mention the father. They never mention Joab's father. They never talk about this guy. Why? Because it doesn't matter. His dad's not related to David. But Zeruiah and David 
grew up together. We need to, and we got to talk about this because, okay, take a step back. We got to talk about this because Abner started all of this. Think about it. Who's the one who moved to Gibeon, who started marching the army toward Hebron in the first place? Whose idea was it to have a little competition? And yet, and yet, even though it was Abner's fault, even though he instigated all of this, Asahel couldn't let it go, could he? He couldn't let Abner flee. He didn't listen to Abner's warning. And what we're going to see is Joab can't let it go either. Sure, Abner started something he couldn't win, but Asahel did the exact same thing. And what we see here is that when people sin, oftentimes it escalates. And it doesn't matter what side you're on, foolishness easily begets foolishness, even if you're technically on the quote-unquote right side. Even if you're on David's side, the Lord's anointed. You know, I I often, I, I make it a point to try to never talk about my kids with sermon illustrations. I got a million stories, but not about my kids. It's not for you guys, because I know what pastor's kids are like. They grow up, and they're like, why did you say all those things about me? Right? So I try not to do it. However, that being said, I'm going to break my rule real quick. It's, not, it's a general story, um, but I have three kids. My oldest is Peyton. She's seven. Reezy is almost three. And the thing is, okay, Peyton's four years older, okay? And uh, she's really patient, okay? I future Peyton, if you're listening to this, uh, I love you. She's really patient, and she plays well with her sister, who is way younger than her, right? Less than half her age. But sometimes it's just too much, and they start fighting over a toy or a snack or something like that. Pastor's household fighting over who's going to read the Bible first. You know how we do. So I got to step in, right? I got to give some pastoral wisdom, right? I, I tell them I have a master's of divinity, and sometimes Pei will say, Reezy started it. And the thing is, most of the time, the truth is Reezy did start it. She's smaller. She's only two years old. She doesn't have self-control. But I'll tell Peyton, look, even if she started it, even if it was her fault, right, she instigated, you didn't need to react in that way, whatever that way was. And also, you're more than twice her age. You should know better. Life of an oldest child, right? Am I right? But the point is, The point is, and this is what I try to tell them, the point is just because someone else started it doesn't get you off the hook for how you contribute to it. And even if you're on the quote-unquote right side, it doesn't mean you can't make it worse. Sometimes she says, I was defending you. I was trying to put it away. I was trying to clean up. And I said, it doesn't matter. It's not an excuse. But see, the thing is, this happens all the time in marriages, This happens with roommates. This happens in church, especially, where someone sins, and they really do sin. But in our response to it, instead of making it better, we make it worse. I've seen churches where there's a legitimate issue, maybe theological even, where you feel like maybe things are going down the wrong path. But instead of handling it correctly, What happens is, it's not the wrong direction that ends up ruining the fellowship and ministry of the church. No, it's the response to it. Wild accusations, gossip, bitterness, complaining. I've seen it in marriages where conflicts can never end. They can never conclude because both spouses need to have the last word 
and they need to one-up the other spouse again and again and again. I mean, marriages go from bad to worse to even worse just because someone forgot to turn off the light or something like that. We can be right in identifying a problem, but we can also be wrong in how we respond. Think about your own life for a moment. Would you say you're someone who escalates things? Are you someone who is easily provoked? Are you someone who responds in a way that might just be sinful according to Holy Scripture? Let me warn you, don't underestimate the potential that you have to ruin everything. It sounds harsh, but it's human nature. Scripture is clear. Sin is crouching at the door. That's what God told Cain before he murdered his brother out of hatred. Sin lies in wait for us and is ready to pounce at any moment. And the thing is with Cain, sin got in through his hatred. But here, what do we see? Sin gets in through other things. Through Asahel's desire to to quell this rebellion. Sin gets in through Joab's love for his own brother. He's filled with vengeance, a need for uh, revenge against Abner for what he did to his brother. And here's the crazier thing. Part of the reason why Abner is doing all this in the first place, his stated reason is out of loyalty to his cousin Saul. We can justify our rebellion. We can dress it up in a costume of righteousness. But if at the end of the day, we're found to be setting ourselves up against the Lord and against his true anointed, well then, what are we even doing? You know, there's another fable from Aesop, the farmer and the fox. He really liked foxes for some reason. But in this fable, a fox keeps robbing a farmer's poultry yard, which is super annoying and costly. Finally, one day, he catches the fox, and in anger for all the things that he's lost, for all the times the fox got away, he decides to get revenge on this fox, and he gets some rope, and he soaks it in oil, and he ties it to the fox's tail, and he sets it on fire, which is very cruel and unusual in its punishment. And the fox, dying in agony, basically being tortured to death, takes off through the farmer's field, and he burns all his crops. We know why the fox ran. He's on fire. But do we understand why the farmer did what he did? We're two-thirds through this message now. If we don't understand yet, let me just put it right out there for you. Because just as scorpions sting, it's in their nature, humans sin. And what we see here is that humans tend to escalate when provoked. Abner shows up and all hell breaks loose, literally. So don't underestimate the potential that we have to ruin things. This leads to the third and final point. The end. The end. How does this passage end? How does it conclude? And I know some of you don't want this uplifting, right, and inspiring sermon to end. But we're almost there. Look, I'm not saying all these hard things to try to make you just feel bad or to make you cynical about people in general. I don't, I'm not saying this just to say it. I'm saying it because I don't want us to be naive and blindly optimistic about ourselves and about others. Because the truth is blind optimism. One, it's not realistic. But two, 
it leaves no room for real hope. You'll see what I mean, verse 23. But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear came out at his back and he fell there and died where he was and all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. It says that they stood still. Who did? All who came to the place. Not just Abner's men, not just Joab's men, anyone who saw Asahel, this mighty man who was alive just a few hours before lying in cold blood, was frozen at the spot. They were shocked and sobered by what had happened, how quickly things had escalated. I mean, these men, they weren't soft. They knew war. But to see one of Judah's finest with a spear through his stomach, an Abner spear, to see brother, Israelite brother against Israelite brother, killing one another, they all stood still. Verse 24. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. And of course they did. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Amma, which lies before Gia on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of the hill. Then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your brothers or your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? Honestly, it's like the most annoying thing that this guy says. He started all of this and he says, hey, wait, you're going to keep killing us? We're your brothers. Abner knows the game is up though. This is his last chance. His last stand he knows is going to end in his death unless Joab stops. So he says, Joab, you're really going to kill your brothers And Joab said, as God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. He heard it, their brothers. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight anymore. Verse 29, and Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, and marching the whole morning, they came to Mahanaim, where they started. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down a Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. And they took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. That's the end of the passage. What started as a call to entertainment... What escalated into a bloodbath of foolishness and revenge now ends with a funeral. Actually, many. And sure, okay, there's a way to look at this and say, well, David clearly won. He only lost 20 men to Abner's 360, a good ratio. But the truth is, if Abner had just listened to the word of God, how many people would be dead right now? Zero. 20 men. 20 men who were sons and brothers, maybe fathers and husbands, are gone, and 360 on the other side. Why end with this? Why does the Bible end, or why does this passage in the Bible end with this long march home in the night? Because we have to see that when you do these things, when you trust in human beings, it only ends in despair and in death. When people just let sin manifest and escalate, when you just act according to your nature, this is the result. Psalm 146, 
Hear it. Verse 3. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Christian here, we have to stop putting our trust in people. I'm not saying don't trust anyone at all. I'm not saying that. There is no salvation in men. That's what I'm saying. You can trust some people to a certain extent. Don't put your trust in anyone. Not in commanders. Not in mighty warriors. Not in princes. Not in Abner. Not in Joab. Not in David. Whoever. Scorpions will be scorpions. People will be people. Everyone is a moon. Everyone has a dark side. I'm telling you guys, we gotta stop placing all of our hopes and dreams for salvation in mere people because they can't do it. They can't live up to it. They can't bear the weight of that. We do it all the time. We gotta stop. Politicians. This is the person that's going to save America. Visionary leaders, this is the person who's going to save me from all my problems. Great preachers, this person is going to save the church based on all of his giftings. Can they be used by God? Of course. But can they save you? Not a chance in the world. But do we believe that though? Can we believe that? If we do, if we can, then it's time for a change. You've got to understand that your husband or your wife, they're not going to be able to save you. Your kids, they can't bear the weight of all of your hopes and dreams. Pastors, they will fail you. Trust me. Every human being is a human being, so no more placing our hopes in if only we could get a gifted. No, none of that, none of that. Stop. Sure, these things can help, but understand that left to our own devices, if anything we do is merely human, then it is destined to fail. And this is the result. It's been that way since the beginning. And we can't even trust in ourselves. Never say again, I got it. Because we don't. So what can we do? Well, look at the text, the last verse again. Where does this passage really end? Not just with a funeral, not just with a long march at night. If you really look at it, and they took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. The sun rises upon them at Hebron. Remember we talked about Hebron a couple weeks ago. Let me refresh your memory. Remember how in this cursed, fallen, broken, sinful world... God spoke to a man named Abraham and made a covenant with him that he would give him a place, that he would make him into a people, and through his family, he would save the world. Do you remember? And God gave him that miracle baby in Isaac, whose name means laughter. And through Isaac's line, Israel became a great nation. And God gave them their promised land. But where was the first place that that promise was fulfilled? Where was the first acre of land that was given to Abraham and his family in the promised land? The one place in that entire area that Abraham ever got to live in was Hebron. Despair in human beings, but hope in the promise of God. 
that's it. There's only one human being who has ever lived that you can hope in because he wasn't just a human being. He was God in the flesh. And in this man in whom all of God's promises are yes and amen, Second Corinthians 1.20, the greater son of Abraham, the better son of David, the new and second Adam, the man Jesus Christ, we can hope. See, when he was in the garden, he didn't fail, but he said to God, not my will, but your will. It's completely different than us. And in obedience, he went to his death on a cross for the sins of the world. And in him, guys, you got to understand this. In him, we can hope. You and I, anyone who believes, we can be different. That's the crazy thing about Jesus. He came to be one of us so that we could become like him. New creations with new natures. Christians who become more like Christ. You see how that works? No longer merely human, but something more because of Christ. Hope in him. We'll close here. We'll close here. For some reason, okay, the kids wanted to know the guy's name, the man in the well. He didn't want to tell them, though. He wanted help. But things changed when accidentally Wendy said, and you know, I realize now that I'm reading this that these people have names of people in our church. It's actually in the story, okay? I'm not trying to do like an object lesson. But, and uh, Eric Lau said, no. Wendy said accidentally, Aaron said his dad is almost here. She let the guy know that one of them was named Aaron. And once the man learned their names, he started talking to them directly. Do you see how that works? He said, Aaron, where's your dad? And the kids are horrified. And Aaron, for some reason, he tells him all their names. And all of them are horrified, angered even. How could he betray them like this? And the man starts asking them pointed questions. He says, what do you think I look like, Arthur? How old do you think I am, Jason? They don't know his name. They know nothing about this guy. But all of a sudden, he knows who they are. And this weird dynamic is created where they feel so guilty because they are the ones, and he knows, who didn't get help. And now it's almost as if they can't help because they haven't already. So what do they do? They just leave him in the well. And they never go back. And in the end of the story, it's fiction, okay? But at the end of the story, you just feel terrible, even so. And some people have analyzed this story and they said, this man, he must have been evil, right? He, he had to have been a murderer or something. Why would he be in the well? Right? Kids, stay away from murders in a well. You're being smart. That's not in the story at all. The reason why people say this is because it's too much to believe that maybe some people would come across a man in need in a well and they wouldn't help for understandable reasons to us. Even if he was evil, it doesn't change the fact that it was cruel not to help him. And see what the story is telling us in the words of Mark Twain, is everyone's a moon. Everyone has a dark side. And most cannot accept it. That's what I learned from the man in the well and how people talk about that story. Most cannot accept it. But if you can, if you do, and you must if you are a Christian, if you can accept that the heart of the human problem is actually the problem of the human heart that's beating in your chest, if you can accept that maybe you 
do indeed have a dark side, then things can actually start to change. Because, think about it. Think about what moons are. They can't generate light by themselves, but they can reflect it. So stop trying and stop looking for light in the wrong places. You can't solve your own problems. The people around you, they can't do it either. But there is someone who can. And when we accept that we are hopeless in of ourselves, we'll actually start to let God work through us in our mission, for example, to evangelize our neighbors. It won't just be us trying to be smart enough to argue people into the kingdom. We'll know that the power belongs to God and not to us. Then we'll start praying instead of always plotting and planning. Nothing wrong with those things, but we'll pray because we know that God has to do it in order for it to work. When we do it, we'll be more humble with each other. We'll be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger because we know who we are. We'll become servants instead of consumers. See, guys, the truth is, hope is in here. Hope is here. It's in here. Will you bow your heads with me? I'm going to give you a minute to pray on your own. There's something that you've been struggling with Maybe a difficult situation or a personal sin. There's something you've been struggling with that maybe you've been trying to deal with by your own strength or looking to people to solve it for you. It's going to give you a chance to give it to the Lord. Give you a chance to humbly submit yourself to Him. Father, we know who we are. We know who you are. And we know that we can do what needs to be done on our own. But we know that in Christ, through Christ, the impossible is possible. God, you can help us to overcome. You can help us to be different people than who we were. You can help us to reconcile with the people that we are estranged from. You can help us to overcome the sins that beset us. So God, we look to you. We pray that your will will be done in us and in this church. We pray, God, that at the end of the day, all glory will go to you. That we will know in our heart of hearts that it wasn't us. It was all you. In Jesus' name, amen.